Okay. Hebrew or English? Uh, I think English. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So my guess is that the, the first question is on everybody's mind. What kind of an audacity, audacity, does a historian need to write about the future? How dare you? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, to do something like that, you cannot take yourself completely seriously. Otherwise, you become paralyzed. But speaking a bit more seriously, I think the main reason to learn history is not to learn from the past. It's to be liberated from the past. Uh, to liberate our mind from the conditioning of past events and past ideologies and processes in order to think more freely and more creatively, more audaciously about the future. And I try to practice what I preach. So, okay, if I really studied the history and um, I understand the human past to some extent, how does it help me to try and understand the future? And writing Homo Deus was kind of uh, you know, practicing this, this idea. Okay. So, you know, I'm, I'm imagining somebody writing a book about the future of humanity. Let's say two years uh, before Hitler gets into power. <laughs> and they write the book and they submit it for copy editing and so on. And, they, and by the time it comes out, it's like six weeks after Hitler was elected. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the world is very different. Mm -hmm. I would pity a person. <laughs> and I would ask him if he wants to rewrite. Uh, so more seriously, um, you know, I, I think, I think the, the world is, from my perspective, incredibly different now than I thought it was. Mm -hmm. um, but but from your perspective, looking at a, a broader time scale, do you see Trump election as a, as a, as a big step, as a, as a difference in how humanity will proceed? Or for you, it's a small bump in the road that will be unnoticed? Well, first, I, I must say as a historian that I, I, I'm, I feel uncomfortable with the comparison between Trump and Hitler. I think there are many, many differences. Oh, th this was not intended <laughs> to be the comparison. It was just... <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, leaving that aside... It was, it was about a change in history, a bump that was unexpected and things are different afterward. I'm not, I'm not directly comparing. Okay, so, so in that case, I would say that... You know, it's far too soon to know what would be the long-term impact. But because uh, Homo Deus, it doesn't deal with the near future. It tries to deal, it, it, its span is like decades and centuries. It tries to look at the long-term processes. And it's not a book of forecasts or prophecies. It's really, I try to map different possibilities, even contradictory possibilities. And uh, when you talk about things like the rise of artificial intelligence, so um, the rise of Donald Trump doesn't really change that. I mean, it's not that we'll stop researching uh, machine learning or AI uh, because of the new administration. And um, the options that were before we might, us... We might change some things in, in research on biology or environmental protection yes, or certainly. animal I mean, rights. If you look, say, at, at climate change and global warming, then yes, the policy might change but the threat of global warming and climate change is still there. And even before the election of Trump, humankind and the United States in particular have done embarrassingly little about this threat. So uh, the dire predictions about my, climate change... My prediction change, is in retrospect, we'll think we've done a lot. Just a comparison. Um, <laughs> could be, um, but again, I think when you look at the big picture, as such a political event, at least for now, does not change the fundamental patterns. Of course, you know, politicians, there is an imbalance there because politicians have a limited ability to do good, but an unlimited ability to do harm. Um, and 
because of that, it's, it's, really, it's really impossible to know what the consequences will be. So, so are you, I mean, the, the statement you said that uh, they have huge capacity to do harm, th does that mean you're, you're worried about it? Or you, because part of what you said sounded as if you don't think that the current political climate in the US will have a, a large long-term implication. No, it might have. I'm just saying that um, I'm really concerned about the big challenges that humankind will face in the 21st century. And the challenges are unchanged. Our reaction to the challenges, this is an open question. And in terms of our reaction to the challenges, then yes, a different political climate can make a huge change. I think the, the biggest danger with the current wave of nationalism that you see not only in the United States, but in many other parts of the world, is that it really limits the ability of humankind to manage successfully the main challenges of the 21st century. Traditionally, the main criticism of nationalism was that nationalism leads to conflict and war. And this is still true. But I think that today, the even bigger problem with nationalism is that it might prevent humankind from mounting an effective uh, solution, an effective reaction to the global challenges of this century, which are above all climate change and technological disruption. No single country by itself can solve global warming and climate change. And this is one of the reasons, I think, that you find this surprising correlation between nationalist politics and the denial of climate change. At first sight, you would ask yourself, what's the connection? Why is it that almost all the people who deny climate change tend to come from the nationalist right? Why don't you hear about socialists denying climate change? And at first sight, it seems strange. But then when you think about it more deeply, it's obvious. Nationalism has no solution to climate change because obviously you cannot solve it on the, on, in, in just in one, in one country. So the only option is to deny it. And it's the same with uh, the threat of technological disruption, things like the rise of uh, way, bioengineering. Before, before I do this on, on climate change, uh, uh, one of my uh, students, Troy, did this beautiful uh, piece of, of research. He took a, a group of Republicans and he asked them, uh, how big do you think is the problem of climate change? And they said, not, not big at all. Right? That's kind of the control group. Mm -hmm. Then he took another group and he said, the solution to climate change is more government interventions, more rules, more regulations, and so on. How big do you think is the problem of climate change? Not big at all. A third group, he said, the solution for climate change is small enterprise. Deregulation, <laughs> let the government get out of our back, just let the free markets do its own. How big do you think is the problem of climate change? Very big, almost as big as what Democrats mm -hmm. believe. And, and the, the way he, he talks about it, it's what is called solution aversion. Mm -hmm. that, that you imagine you, you went to a doctor and the doctor tells you you have some disease and because of that you can't eat chocolate. So I don't like the solution, let me deny <laughs> the problem. I don't really have this, this health problem. Mm -hmm. so, so what you're saying is in the same, in yeah. the same spirit exactly. is, is you don't like, if you don't like solutions that mean that you need to collaborate with other people, you're denying, you're denying the problem to start with. Exactly. And I think in the case of climate change, Mm, the, the bad news is that probably the free market will not solve it by itself. Uh, so you cannot just use this research to say, ah, oh, we just need to frame the question in a different way because no. I don't think the free market will solve it. And it's the same with technological disruption. If people fear, for example, uh, rampant bioengineering getting out of control, it's not something you can do, you can uh, counter or in, on a national basis. Because let's say the United States bans genetic engineering experiments on human beings, but China or Korea uh, continues to do it. So not only you won't solve the problem, but very soon the US will be forced to, um, uh, to, to go beyond its own ban, its own ban 
because these are high-risk, high-gain technologies, and nobody would like to stay behind. Even if you don't want to do it, just knowing that the Chinese are doing it and they're gaining an advantage over us will cause the Americans also to do it. So the only serious way to counter these uh, threats is through global cooperation. And nationalism does not take us in that direction. And are you, are you optimistic about uh, collaborations across the globe? About the outcome of such collaborations no, or about the, the chances of, of actually doing it? The possibility it? of collaboration. I definitely think there is a, such a possibility. I mean, we saw it in the case, for example, of nuclear weapons, that in the late 40s and 50s, uh, everybody was afraid that sooner or later the Cold War will turn into a nuclear holocaust and that it's only a question of time. And, you know, it's still a question of time, but as of February 2017, it didn't happen. Instead of nuclear war, actually, the last few decades have been the most peaceful era in human history. I think largely because of nuclear weapons, humankind kind of um, rose to the challenge of this mm -hmm. threatening technology. And nuclear weapons, they have a way of sharpening people's mind and making people all over the world realize that we are all passengers on the same spaceship Earth, and we all fall or rise together. Um, so this is a good example of humanity doing the right thing, but there is no guarantee. Um, as a historian, I know that we should never underestimate human stupidity. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the most powerful forces in history. Yeah. Um, you know, this, uh, this question of uh, collaboration, so, um, you know, we, we put people in different situations and play different uh, games with them. And uh, maybe uh, two of the most interesting games about uh, how you get people to, to collaborate, uh, one of them is called the public's good game. Mm -hmm. and, and in this game, just as, a, as one numerical example, you take 10 people in a room, Let's say, no, you take 10 people. Uh, every day they wake up and they each get $10. And they could keep as much of this as they want and they can put the rest of it in a, in a public pot. Mm -hmm. And whatever they put in the public pot grows five times during the day and in the evening divided equally by everybody. Mm -hmm. So how does the game work? Day number one, people wake up, 10 people, $10, everybody puts their money in, $100, grows five times. $500, everybody gets $50. And, and this collaboration continues and continues and continues, and everybody's very happy waking up every morning with $10, going to sleep with 50. And then one day, one person doesn't put any money in. What happens? Nine people put $10 in, $90, multiply five times, 450, divide equally by everybody. Everybody gets $45, one person has 55. They have their previous 10 plus the 45 because everybody yeah. benefits from the public good. What happens the next day? Nobody puts anything in. <laughs> and this is the idea that we have kind of two equilibria, right? two places that society can be. We can be in a place where we all help each other and participate. But the moment one person deviates from the strategy, very quickly you move to a strategy where nobody puts anything. Mm -hmm. right? And it's non-symmetrical because the equilibria where everybody puts money in is very fragile. Mm. One person deviating goes all the way to, to the bad equilibria. But if you're in the bad equilibria and one person participates, it doesn't go to participation, yeah. right? So, so there is something about this notion of how delicate the situation is of collaboration mm -hmm. and how even deviation of one person can, can hurt it. Interestingly, connect, connecting to this question of nuclear weapons, one of the things that help is the ability for revenge. Hmm. So if people know that if they misbehave, other people can take revenge against them, the system kind of regulates itself. You don't need external forces. Mm -hmm. Everybody's sufficiently afraid from retaliation that the whole thing uh, keeps for, uh, basically maintains, mm -hmm. maintains itself. Um, but retaliation is tough between, uh, between nations. Um, I want to uh, talk a little bit about, about honesty, mm. fake news. And, um, you know, I, 
I noticed that in the, in the Hebrew uh, edition of the book, there was, there was a chapter that was, the headline was something truth, why we don't want to know the truth or yeah. something like that. And that chapter was gone I mean, the in the title English was version. <laughs> no, the title was changed, I know. Um, <laughs> still, still, I find it significant, but you know, maybe, maybe it's just me. Um, <clears throat> but if, if we think about this new, I don't know, relationship we have with the truth mm -hmm. in the last few months, do you think that that's um, a significant um, a change? Like, um, like, you know, I look at it and I'm horrified, but maybe I'm just looking too short term. Maybe, maybe in the long well, term it doesn't well, matter. You know, it, it, I, need, I need some comfort, I'm asking. Okay, so <laughs> I'll say this, this whole thing of fake fake news and, and, and uh, lies being spread, it's terrible, but there is absolutely nothing new about it. I mean, if this is the era of post-truth, I would like to know when was the era of truth, because I kind of missed it, and I, I feel like I missed the party. I mean, was it the 1980s, was it the 1930s, was it the Middle Ages, when was the era of truth? I don't think there is anything uh, in the fake news of today that uh, Joseph Goebbels, the minister of Nazi propaganda, would have found unfamiliar. Uh, fake news have been with us for thousands of years. Um, just think of the Bible. And, <laughs> you know, I I've heard that in American courtrooms, people swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth with their hand on a Bible. Yeah. I mean, it's like you put, you can put Harry Potter there. No, and no, it, we tested this, actually. Uh, what? It, it actually, um, so, so I do lots of experiments on dishonesty. Okay. And um, in, in some of the, so we, we tempt people to steal money mm -hmm. uh, from us. And uh, one of the ways uh, we tempt people to steal money, we have all kinds of ways, but one of them is we give people a six-sided die. And we say, why don't you toss this die, and we'll pay you whatever it comes up on comes on six, we'll give you six dollars, five, five dollars, and so on, up to one. But you can get paid based on the top side or the bottom, top or bottom. You decide, but don't tell us. Mm. So imagine you're an experiment. I said, decide top or bottom. You have it in your mind, yes? Okay. Now roll the die, and it came with five on the bottom and two on the top. And that was say, what did you pick? Mm -hmm. Now, if you picked bottom, no problem. You say bottom and you get five dollars. If you pick top, you have a dilemma. Do you say the truth? top and get $2, or do you change your mind? Mm -hmm. and, and in the experiment, people have a sheet of paper and they say, I picked, like they write a V, roll the die, it came with five and two, I chose five, I chose two, and they do it 20 times, and every time they think again and so on. And when you do it 20 times, you find that people are incredibly lucky. <laughs> and, and actually, luck is incredibly, uh, has a really nice feature. It focuses on the six one die tosses. Mm. Um, but, when people swear on the Bible mm -hmm. before doing this, cheating goes away. So, you know, we haven't tested Harry Potter, but, but <laughs> swearing on the Bible gets, gets cheating to go away, even for atheists, mm -hmm. even for self-declared atheists. <laughs> um, so, so I, I, it's, it's a good mechanism. Like, practically, it's no, effective, don't? Uh... That, that's definitely, <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't say it wasn't effective. I that's feel like I need to defend the Bible here. That's definitely true. I mean, again, um, looking back in history, it's obvious to me that no large-scale human society can function without some shared mythology, some shared fictions about something, about God, about human rights, about freedom, about the nation. You always have to have this kind of shared common mythology in order to, for society to function. I was just commenting about this idea of fake news as yeah. being something new. Uh, it isn't. It's but been with us for thousands of years. That's, the, that's of course right. But, but is the does the intensity matter? Just, just bef because there was always a dishonesty, does it mean that there's not a substantial uh, shift? Increase. Uh, by the way, there's a, there's a story in the Bible, now that you've attacked the Bible, I need to know. <laughs> there's a story in the Bible that uh, God goes to Sarah. And he says, Sarah, you're going to have a son. 
And Sarah laughs. And she says, how can I have a son when my husband is so old? And God says, don't worry, you'll have a son. And then God goes to Abraham. He says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And Abraham says, did you tell Sarah? <laughs> and God says, yes. And Abraham says, and what did Sarah said? <laughs> and God lies. The Bible, God lies. And God says, Sarah said, how could you have a son when she is so old? And Chazal, the religious scholars, wondered how could God lie? And what was their conclusion? It's okay to lie for peace at home. Mm. For Shalom Bay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're right, of course, that, that we, we understand that dishonesty has been with us, right? And, and I think the recognition is that there are many human values. Honesty is one of them. Uh, but not all human values are compatible all the time. Mm -hmm. And what do you do when human values collide? How do you feel about somebody else versus uh, how much do you care about the truth? Um, but nevertheless, it, it looks to me that now uh, the place in the hierarchy of the truth compared to other human values mm -hmm. has changed. And, and I think that just saying it's, we've always had it, it doesn't capture the whole picture. And the, the, the whole picture does say that there are lots of things now that matter more than the, than the truth. And the thing about the but, truth... But I would say it was always like that also. The truth was never the highest priority of human society. It was the highest priority of some individuals, but never of society as a whole, because society as a whole does not function on the basis of truth. And if you take two of the most powerful institutions of, of, of humankind, let's think about science and the scientific community, and let's think about religion and churches and so forth, I think that none of them has truth as their chief value. As individuals, yes. But as institutions, no. I think the chief value of science is power, and the chief value of religion is uh, order, it's organization. Religion is all about having order in society, and science is mainly about gaining power, gaining power over the world. They use truth to some extent on the way to achieving power or to achieving uh, older, but this is not say, their say highest a bit more about Say more a bit power, about power, what, what do you mean? I think science as an institution is interested in gaining the power, the, to gain control over the world, to be able to gain control over diseases, over the human body, over the environment, over rivers and animals and forests. I mean, when you have two, um, you submit a grant, to somebody who finds, I mean, it all comes down to money in, in many cases. Uh, in order to have an institution, if you're a freelance scientist, you just explore the truth, okay. But as an institution, as a university, you, you, need, re you need money to finance. You, you, so you submit, a research, you, you, you submit a research grant, and you have to convince the authority not of the truth. You have to convince the authorities that what you want to do will somehow make us more powerful, will somehow enable us to produce a new weapon, will somehow enable us to produce more food, will somehow enable us to gain control of a previously uncontrollable epidemic of disease. Mm -hmm. And this is really what gets the money. So of course it needs to also to be true to some extent. If it doesn't work, then who wants it? But, 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 but the sense of control, so so when you say to gain a sense of control, it sounds, uh, I don't know, uh, like some personal dysfunction, right? That we want the, the feeling of control. No, not the feeling we, of control. Control. One control. I mean, yeah. medicine is about really controlling disease. Yeah. Um, engineering is about really being able to build a dam that will stop the river from flowing. Yeah, but, but, but the language the language of control, I think, make it seem like it's a psychosis or it's a, you know, something, something un, unpleasant and not desirable, where you could have said science has a desire to improve the human condition. And we want to improve the human uh, condition in all kinds of ways. And of course, it means 
understanding what's going on and trying to do to do better. It's just such a nice framing. Can you, can you, can we agree to stick to that rather than the con being control freak? That just doesn't. doesn't yeah, I, I think in most. I mean, it's not a contradiction. It's of course a question of of how you frame it. But looking, you know, at hundreds of years of scientific institutions and scientific uh, uh, progress. Uh, not in all cases, but in many cases, the basic thinking is that in order to improve the human condition, we need to gain control of something. It's not like, okay, let's all do yoga and this will improve the human condition. It's more like, how do we build a dam? How do we cut down a forest? How do we produce a, how do we produce a new kind of antibiotics? I mean, th things like yeah. that. It's, there are exceptions, I know, but trying to, to present the big picture you know, 500 years of, of modern science, I think it was much more about gaining control than about anything else in terms of improving the human condition or how to improve the human condition. So, so I, I have to disagree. You know, as, as somebody who is kind of uh, trying to run all kinds of experiments all the time uh, in multiple places, I, I think that the main motivation is to figure out what we're doing currently wrong. Mm -hmm. Right? So... Um, it's basically saying, what are we doing right now that is messing up our lives? Uh, you know, what, what kind of medications are we giving people that we thought were helpful but are not? Mm -hmm. um, what's the effect of smoking on behavior? Uh, we give people Fitbit and all kinds of things to measure. Is it really working? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I look at the tremendous amount of waste that we have in terms of how we waste our time and money and health and so on. And I want us to waste less of it. Now, you could say this is about control, but, but for me it's mostly about what are all the things that we're doing that we should do less of or, or do differently. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm going to disagree with your uh, uh, characterization of, of science. No, I, th I think that your project indeed sounds, sounds different. <laughs> and um, yes, I mean, I, as I said, it, I'm presenting the big picture. If I think, you know, in terms of centuries, I go back to where it all began. And as far as I understand, I mean, it all began, I mean, the first breakthrough scientific discipline that launched the scientific revolution, according to my understanding, was geography. It was all these sailors and all these explorers leaving Europe in the 14th and 15th century, and in the 15th and 16th century, and exploring the world and mapping it. This is the first big scientific um, project to map the world. I mean, people often speak about astronomy and you know Copernicus and Galileo and so forth, but this was really a side issue. The big thing was geography and was exploring the world. This is where the big money went to. And the reason the big money went there is because the kings of Spain and Portugal and France and so forth and the bankers in Genoa and Venice, they thought correctly that mapping the world was the first step to conquering it. And uh, this was really, the, this proved that science is something that is worth investing in. I mean, all these planets, I mean, the sun is in the center, the, the earth is in the center, who cares? How can you make money from that? How can, you <laughs> how can you conquer territories from that? But geography, I mean, the king of France saw that, yes, this king of Spain, he gave money to, to Columbus and to Magellan, and now he has all this gold from Mexico. I also want. And this was like the big, the first big project, successful project, of modern science was that, mapping the world. And it was obvious to everybody that it's not being done out of sheer curiosity, it's being done in order to control and to conquer. And it's still, I think, the case that when we come to, you know, we now try to map the brain, and despite everything that people may say to the contrary, to me, it seems obvious that we try to map the brain not out of sheer curiosity, but because we want to control it. We want to conquer it. So, 
<laughs> I, I'm, I, conquer, conquer is a... So first of all, something about geography. I, I, was just, um, I was just in Antarctica a couple of months ago. You too? Yeah, you were there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> in December, were you uh, there? In December? Yeah, it was in January. Okay. <laughs> I, I can't believe anybody was trying to map Antarctica thinking there's anything good. <laughs> like, like, these guys were like stuck for years, sometimes in the ice and mm -hmm. like, this was just pure torture. Uh, I'm not sure they thought the, it would be. But the people who gave them money, why did they give Scott and Edmondson and all these explorers, who gave them the money and why? You know what? It costs a lot of money to I, go to I, Antarctica. I think it was like a bad joke. I, I don't like, why, why would you send somebody like, to Antarctica? Like, cool. There is oil there. There is gold there. Who knows what's in Antarctica? Uh, ice. <laughs> um, so, are you, are, you, are you generally kind of a pessimistic? Um, I think I'm a realist, <laughs> but... That's, uh, that's what pessimists say. No, I mean, <laughs> You know, every major change in history has both a good side and a bad side, or at least a good potential and a bad potential. And I do my best to see both. I mean, I would go on record saying things like, we live in the most peaceful era in human history and defend this view to the best of, our, of, my, of my ability, I think it's, it's completely true. I mean, human violence is at its lowest ever. More people die from eating too much than from human violence. I mean, in terms of human life and death, Coca-Cola and McDonald's are a far greater threat than Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Um, and so people say, you're, you're, you're such an optimist. What about all the terrorists, all the war in Syria and, and Iraq and Somalia and, and, and so forth? And then I look at climate change, uh, or I look at the, some of the potential of things like artificial intelligence, and people say you're a terrible pessimist. And I, I think that, you know, I, I, I try to be both because human beings have been doing wonderful things and terrible things at the same time. So, do you have any... Uh From a personal perspective, are you, are you trying to keep yourself optimistic on a day-to-day on a -day basis? Like, do you wake up in the morning and say, Syria, global warming, <laughs> it's not going to be good? What, like, how, um, do you, how do you keep yourself optimistic on a, or do you? I don't engage with it. I mean, I, I, I don't engage with the exercise of trying to be optimistic or pessimistic. I, to the best of my ability, I just try to see what is really happening. And some very good things are happening and some very bad things are happening, and I try to see both of them. And it doesn't influence you personally? Like, you're not, you're not waking up, uh, you know, you, thinking about the future of the world, mm -hmm. humanity, for, for a long time, it doesn't kind of penetrate your daily life in terms of... Um, you know, my research has some impact on how I live my life in general. Uh, for example, because of my research, I became a vegan, and I tried to stop my engagement with the meat and dairy and egg industry. Because of what I read and discovered about our treatment of animals in this industry. So, uh, yes, it does affect how I actually conduct my personal life. But I try not to let it, you know, cloud my vision. I think that my my job as a historian, as, as a scholar, <clears throat> is to keep my vision as clear as possible uh, so that I could convey to my students, to my readers, uh, the clearest possible picture of what's happening in the world. And once you allow yourself to start being like a professional optimist or a professional pessimist, then you're lo no longer a professional historian. Mm -hmm. So, so I'll give you a, a kind of a different perspective of how a social scientist uh, looks at this. So um, 
you know, because I was uh, badly injured a long time ago and I wrote very uh, openly about, about my injury, um, lots of people with injuries write me. And maybe once a week somebody writes me and about a year and a half ago, uh, somebody asked me to call them. He said I was badly injured, please call me and what their name is and I, I called this guy in the evening and, and he uh, was a PhD student. He jumped into the ocean, broke his neck, oh. uh, became quadriplegic. And uh, he wanted me to call him a little bit after a year since his original injury, when it was clear that he was not going to get better. And, and he wanted to talk about what life would look like. What, mm. what would he do after that? Um, and we tried to kind of figure out together what kind of things would, would make him happy. And one of the things he said was that he hated all these books that said that the injury was the best thing that ever happened uh, to them. <laughs> so and I, I hate them too. So we agreed that he's going to write a book against that. So that was one, that was one thing. And then uh, his uncle needed some help with some algorithms and he was a student in uh, applied math. So that was a good uh, combination. He was going to help his, his uncle. Um, and then he asked me, what do we think about committing suicide? Mm -hmm. And what I told him is I'm not against it in principle, but we just came with two other plans. So let's first, uh, <laughs> let's see how they work out. And, um, and for the next four months, we talked about once a week and he made some progress and I gave him feedback and, and things kind of moved slowly, mm -hmm. but, but moved along. And at the end of those four months, he did uh, commit suicide. And uh, his sister called me to, to let me know. And, and I started wondering, uh, why did he give up? So since then, I've been kind of spending some time with uh, people with different injuries, uh, mostly quadriplegics, mm -hmm. uh, trying to kind of figure out why, can I, can I do anything about, figure out why people are, some people are giving up and some people are, are not. And, and one of the lessons uh, I learned was that the successful people in dealing with those difficult injuries did not think long-term to the meaning of life. Mm -hmm. They thought about daily challenges. Uh, so for example, there's one guy who um, got injured with a bicycle accident, also quadriplegic. And he asked the person who is his caretaker to put his clothes on the floor and he would wiggle his body into it. He had a stick that he was all under his armpit and he would kind of wiggle himself into the clothes. It would take him about 45 minutes every day and he, he would time himself. Hmm. And when he got to beat the 45 minutes, he felt he was accomplishing something. When he was slower, uh, he felt he needed to, need to improve. And, and, and this is true for lots of other people as well, is that kind of the daily challenges I think are kind of easier to deal with mm. uh, than the big meaning of life. Definitely. So when I was reading your book, you know, I was, I was thinking, you know, that, that you're concerned with the, you're kind of like the. <laughs> I'm concerned with the meaning of life. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to tell you, you need to be depressed, but that's what I was thinking. Um, that, you know, from my perspective, you know, I, I feel like I had a good day when I feel a little trick to help people live slightly better on the small scale. Mm -hmm. Let's get people to eat slightly better or save a little bit more money or exercise a bit more, all kinds of things like that. But when you look at the big, at the big picture, it's a little hard not to get, not to get depressed. Well, that, that depends. Um, I think people tend to be depressed when they look at the really big picture because people tend to find meaning in stories. I mean, usually when people ask, what is the meaning of life? Who am I? What am I doing here? Yes. They expect, what, what? I, I'll, I'll get an answer, answer in a minute. <laughs> okay. uh, wait. They usually, the problem is the kind of answer they expect. In almost all cases, they expect to get a story. They expect to get a story with a role for them in the drama, I just need to find out what is my, the whole world is a stage, all people are actors, I just need to find out 
what is my role in the cosmic drama and fulfill it. And, and, and that's it. That's the meaning of life. I thought it and, was 42. No, that was... Oh, uh, I'm yeah. getting to that. <laughs> and the thing is that in order to be successful, a story needs to uh, answer for two conditions, to fulfill two conditions. First of all, it must have a role for me in the story. If somebody comes and says, look, God created the universe and the earth and, and the ants, and he gave laws to the ants, and the ants do this, and the ants do that, and at the end of time, he will come and judge the ants, and the good ants will go to heaven, and the bad ants will go to hell. And then you say, yeah, but what about me? And what about all the other humans? Ah, the humans, they don't have any, any, any role to play. Nobody will, will follow such a prophet. So it, the story must the have a role. The, ends, yeah. <laughs> the story must have a role in it for me. And secondly, very importantly, the story must extend beyond my horizons. It's, it should be something that really encompasses me that I can't think beyond. Ah, and, and, and what's the meaning of that? And the wider your horizons, it, the more difficult it is to find a story that gives meaning to your life. Um, we both come from Israel, so you probably can, can understand the, the, the following story. That as a teenager, I, um, I first, the first big story of my life, I tried to find the meaning of life, was the nationalist story. That, uh, ah, the meaning of life, I need to serve the Israeli nation. And like you go in, in, in school, you have the Independence Day ceremonies and their Memorial Day ceremonies and everybody dresses in white and you read poems for in memory of the fallen soldiers and you wave flags and, and, and all that. And you get, this is the meaning of life. If I serve my country and if I even give my life to, to, to my country, then I, I've done it. My life has meaning and I will be part of the eternal Jewish people and Israeli nation, and that's it. I fulfilled my part in the cosmic drama. Uh, but I remember that even when I was 13 or 14, I knew that the universe existed for 13 billion years. And there is a good chance it will exist for another 13 billion years. And I started asking myself, well, will the Jewish people and, and Israel exist in 100 years? Probably, yes, hopefully. A thousand years? Uh, maybe. 10,000 years? Very unlikely. 10 million years? Ah, you're not, you're not you're kidding. But well, the universe will still exist in 10 million years. And there won't be a Jewish people or an Israeli nation in 10 million years. So just becoming a part of the story of the Jewish nation, it, it means nothing in the really big scheme of things. So, I so, so the answer to my previous question is yes, you are depressed. No, I'm There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing, it's like no purpose for <laughs> Eventually I realized that the meaning of life does not come in the shape of a story with a role for me to play. And yes, people do get depressed when they begin to think in very big terms because almost no story manages to hold out when you think in very big terms. I mean, there is, there is another famous, uh, you know, the story about the, the turtles, that somebody asks, uh, somebody believes that the earth is like this big immobile rock. And then they ask him, okay, and, and what keeps the rock in place? Oh, it's on the back of the, an elephant. And what keeps the elephant in place? Oh, it's on the back of a turtle. And the turtle on the back of another turtle. And that turtle, it's turtles all the way down from there onwards. <laughs> so when you really think big, most stories collapse. Um, but if you realize that it's just the human expectation to receive an answer in terms of a story, this is the problem, there is no reason to be depressed. I don't see that. I'm, I'm, I'm getting more, I'm getting, I'm getting depressed. Um, so they gave me this, before you keep on depressing me even more, <laughs> can I get a drink like a whiskey or something? Um, Somebody, somebody's asking the question, uh, do you believe that the belief in religion has been uh, beneficial in the long run? In many cases, yes. Uh, religion has been one of the more beneficial institutions or belief system in, in human history. You can make a long list 
of the victims of religious bigotry and, and so forth, but you can also make a long list of the benefits that humankind got from all kinds of religions. Any, any uh, particular favorites? Religion that you would pick any over others? Oh, it, it all depends on context. I mean, the thing to realize is that usually the people who believe in a particular religion think it is eternal and unchanging. But what you see is that all religions change all the time. Uh, the Judaism of today is a completely different religion than the Judaism of biblical times. In biblical times, you did not have rabbis or synagogues or even a Bible. I mean, it's a completely different religion. It changes. And similarly, the Islam of today is very different from the Islam of, of the Middle Ages. Um, and really, it's not God who makes religions. It's humans who make religion. And when people ask, what is the true essence of Islam? Is it a religion of peace? Or is it a religion of war? I mean, the answer is, Islam is whatever Muslims make of it. If they make of it a religion of peace, it will be a religion of peace. I mean, it has no, it's not like an animal with a DNA that you can ask what is the essence of a chicken or of a dolphin or of a penguin. No, but some, some religions are a little easier to mold than others. Right? I don't so, think so. I mean, it's amazing what humans can do. I mean, you tell them, turn the other cheek, and they somehow understand, let's establish an inquisition and burn people. <laughs> no, they, they, they ignore that. They just mean it for something. No, but... <laughs> But still, I mean, if you think about um, Hinduism or, or, or Buddhism, mm -hmm. uh, a little easier to mold uh, compared to a religion that has 700 and some rules, right? The moment you, you talk about religions that are more abstract, mm -hmm. have uh, um, less particular rules. Well, I, I would let, say, let me ask you the question. I would say so, something a bit different, that not all religions are the same in terms of their impact. On, on humanity and on the world, I would, I would say that the best way to judge the value of stories, I mean, humans need stories in order to organize themselves. You cannot create a society without them. But not all stories are of the same value. For me, the real metric is, is suffering, is the suffering in the world. Some stories cause far more suffering than other stories. And these are the bad stories. Uh, it's not the truth value of the story that really matters. It's the suffering or happiness that it, it enables. So, so if you were going to design a new religion, let's say our goal today is to come up with a new, a new religion, mm -hmm. uh, what, what kind of elements will it have? What, what are the important elements for a good religion? We're trying to do something good. Something good. Something good that has no negative, as little as possible negative, as much as possible positive. What I would place at the center of the religion um, the issue of suffering and not some imaginary story about a god or about an afterlife or anything like that. I would try to bring people, as much as possible, back to the immediate reality of, uh, of what you actually feel um, and of the impact, especially in terms of suffering, of what you do on not only other humans, but on other animals as well. So guilt, <laughs> the kind of essence no. or no? <laughs> uh, I would say responsibility more than guilt. I mean, you did something that harmed other people um, just indulging in feeling guilty is, is it's not going to be helpful. I mean, the thing is, what can you do to rectify matters, to take responsibility? Okay. Uh, what else? What else would be part of your good religion? Um, I think one thing for, what, for an enough? evening is enough. enough? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, somebody's asking a question. I would love to know who it is. Um, how popular do you foresee psychedelic drugs becoming in the next 50 years? <laughs> and do you think they would make us more collectively conscious as a species? So who, who asked this question? <laughs> who, who, come on. <laughs> and, and what's in your purse? <laughs> okay, we, so, so, so um, have, you, have I, you tried anything? Um, as a student, uh, in Oxford, I did. Um, it gave me some little insight, but, but not a lot. Uh, I would say that the big 
it is likely that uh, we'll see more and more of that. And, Why? Uh, especially because people, um, if people are less and less required in the job market, which I think is likely given the rise of artificial intelligence and machine learning, the really big question will be what to do with all the people. I should say we'll have time all of we'll a We'll have sudden. More, more, more time. It's either Netflix and, or mushrooms. Um, <laughs> it's Netflix, mushrooms, or computer games, or a combination oh, of, of all Oh, there you go, talking about. And Might be Netflix movies designed specifically <laughs> for mushrooms. Or something like sense. that. And I personally would say that there is a great danger there, especially because, I mean, I'm all in favor of exploring the mind and consciousness and so forth, but when people take the path of psychedelic drugs, in the vast majority of cases, they end up um, wanting Disneyland. They want more and more excitement, uh, the next thing, the next trip, and they become basically enslaved in this pursuit of ever more excitement. And if you really want to understand the human mind, you have to explore the entire field of the human mind. Uh, I personally would recommend starting with boredom and not with, uh, you know, bliss. I mean, people come, they, they, they try drugs or all kinds of things, they want bliss. I mean, I, you, re you really want to understand the mind. It's very important that you cover all the different uh, parts of the mental field. So week one, sit in a room by yourself alone, boredom? Uh, no, you don't, you don't have to invite boredom, <laughs> but don't run away from it. I mean, the, you can't really get anywhere interesting if you are constantly running away from boredom. In many cases, boredom is like the first line of defense uh, before you can get to the more interesting stuff. And uh, my impression is that people that just constantly want excitement, they get entrapped inside a smaller and smaller cocoon, and they cannot see um, the, all the variety of, of reality. I think, I think just you didn't try good psychedelic drugs. That's a problem. <laughs> I think, I think you're, you, you, need, you need to try. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about this later. Um, <laughs> but but some, the, the person was, do you think they could make us more uh, collectively conscious as a, as a species? So. Um, with some friends, we, we meet once a year to talk about uh, all kinds of things, and one year somebody brought the question of, if you could give one thing as a gift to everybody in the world, what would it be? What would be your answer? Uh, I need to think about that. <laughs> Go ahead, we, we'll wait. Uh, <laughs> I must say that I tend to be a slow thinker. I mean, <laughs> I... No, no, you don't. Um, I, I respond often quite fast <laughs> because these are things I already thought about. But if you okay. bring a new question that I never thought about before... So this is your way to say this time. is the first, the first question I'm asking you that I, you haven't been asked before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, now it's a challenge. <clears throat> um, so, so anyway, one of my friends said that she thought that the best, uh, the, the best gift to give everybody would be MDMA, mm -hmm. this, this drug that creates empathy. And the idea was that if everybody in the world consumed it at the same day, the same, the same time, we might actually uh, start caring more. Yeah, but uh, once, I mean, this is the kind of thing that once you get kind of addicted to the euphoric feeling, when it's gone, uh, the results could be far, far worse. I mean, part of the problem with very exciting experiences or very pleasant experiences is that you just want more and more of that. And if it's not coming... We, we just need to talk about your drug habits. Okay. We'll, we'll talk about it off, <laughs> off things. You, you, don't, you just don't, don't have the, the right dealer. Um, <laughs> what do you think is the role of arts in uh, the cyber slash AI future of our society? I think it's extremely important because um, as humans gain more and more power, our fictions, our imagination also becomes more and more powerful. Um, 
we are now gaining really divine abilities to shape the world, to shape the world outside us, to shape the world inside us, to shape new worlds in cyberspace. And what will really shape these worlds is our dreams and fantasies, and they are shaped by art. So from this perspective, I think in the 21st century, art is probably more important than it ever was before. What, what do you mean by important? What, what, does it, what function, what control Sh is it giving us? Shaping our dreams and fantasies. I mean, what you dream about in life, what you want, you often get it from the books you read, from the television series you watch, from the, from the movies you see. Uh, and, and this is the great power of art. I mean, it's always been like that, of course, but now because we are far more powerful than ever before, then it matters much more what kind of dreams we have. So, you know, artists also should be very responsible in what they are doing because they are shaping, like if you could shape the dreams of God, this kind of responsibility. Um. Okay, here's, a, here's another terrifying question. Um, do we need a Manhattan Project scale effort to safeguard ourselves from artificial intelligence? So we didn't touch mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. There's a lot in the book about this. It's something that you think a lot about. Yes. Uh, um, well, it's not so much that we need to save ourselves from it. It's not a science fiction scenario that artificial intelligence, that the robots are coming to kill us. First of all, what we need to realize is that artificial intelligence is not artificial consciousness. In the movies, and this is again, it goes back to the question of art. I think today, one of the maybe the most important genre of art is science fiction, because it shapes people's understanding of things like artificial intelligence. And here, uh, many science fiction movies are doing us a disservice because they present a very distorted and unrealistic vision of artificial intelligence and the dangers inherent in it. In most movies, the usual plot is that, okay, you develop artificial intelligence, it gains consciousness, and either of two things happen, or both at the same time, either the scientist or somebody falls in love with the robot and then you have all these ethical questions of what happens when a human falls in love with a machine and then blah, blah, blah. Or the other version is it tries to destroy us. And in fact, intelligence and consciousness are completely different things. In humans, they go together. I mean, intelligence basically is the ability to solve problems. Consciousness is the ability to feel things. Human beings and other mammals solve problems very often by feeling things through our emotions, but this is still not the same thing. And in computers, you see an amazing development of intelligence with zero development of consciousness. I don't think that conscious robots or computers are just around the corner. The really big danger, at least the first big danger of artificial intelligence is more social and political. It's more Marx than Hollywood. It's what happens if artificial intelligence pushes billions of people out of the job market and creates an immense new class of useless people and simultaneously concentrates power in the hands of a very small elite. Let's say that you know, self-driving cars replace millions of truck drivers and taxi drivers and, and so forth, all the political and economic power that previously was shared by millions of drivers is now concentrated in the hands of a very small elite that controls the, 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 the transportation algorithms. Are, um, you, are you worried about uh, economic control or control over driving? Because you can, you can solve the economic control with just taxes. It's, it won't be so easy. I mean, people say, ah, oh, universal basic income. But the problem is universal basic income, or two problems, or actually three problems. This all, this all tells us we have 10 more minutes. Oh, so I try to make it very brief. No, 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 you have 10 minutes. <laughs> First of all, people say universal when they actually mean national. I mean, they think, okay, we'll tax 
the high-tech companies in Silicon Valley and use that to pay unemployed truck drivers in Pennsylvania. But what about the unemployed people in Bangladesh or Nigeria? Do you really think that the US government will raise taxes on Google and, and Facebook in Silicon Valley and use that to pay basic income to unemployed workers in Bangladesh? No. Uh, if you, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. So th that's the first problem. Universal is actually national. The second problem is what does basic mean? Basic human needs change all the time. Uh, previously, it was you know, just food and shelter. Now people say education is a basic human need. Universal basic income must include paying for education. So how much education? Uh, six years, 12 years, PhD? What about new medicines? If you have new treatments that can extend human life considerably, would this be available only to a tiny elite or to the masses of people? Is this part of basic income or not? Otherwise, you might end up with a world of a superhuman elite living maybe indefinitely and masses of normal homo sapiens living to be just 70 or 80. And people will not be happy with that because um, even if the medical condition will actually better than in past centuries, humans almost never compare themselves to past centuries. They always look to their more fortunate neighbors and what yeah. to be like them. Actually, there's a, there's a very sad study that just came out that showed that uh, when people win the lottery, their neighbors start spending more money. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so badly that they sometimes go bankrupt, mm. right? Because it's so easy to compete on, on what we can spend. Mm. Um, but, but the question about minimum income guarantee um, is not just, I mean, it's about anything that has to do with, with inequality. It doesn't have to be AI-based. Yeah, that will certainly, the electronic world would accelerate no, the big the question is what happens if you have many people who are really useless from the viewpoint of the First economic of all, don't and political... Call them useless. First of all, I'm taking, again, they are not useless from the viewpoint of the mother or children. They are useless from the viewpoint of the military or the economic and political system. And I, I say it on purpose, this provocative term useless, because when you look back to the 20th century and you look at the, one of the big achievements of humankind, was that all over the world, countries began investing in building these massive systems of education and health and welfare, even in dictatorial regimes like the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany. You governments built these educational and, and health systems. And the reason they did it was not because they're very nice people, Stalin and Hitler, it's because they thought the humans were useful. They knew that if they wanted to have a strong army and a strong economy, they needed millions of poor Germans to serve as soldiers in the army and as workers in the factories. Now, if because of artificial intelligence and machine learning and so forth, humans lose their usefulness to the military and to the economic system, and in the military, it's already happening. Mm -hmm. Um, then this is very, very bad news, especially in the larger developing countries. I think in Denmark they'll be okay. I mean, their tradition of the welfare state and so forth will be strong enough. But in places like Nigeria, South Africa, Brazil, India, if people become useless from the viewpoint of the military and economic systems, then this is very, very bad news for hundreds of millions of people. Okay, depression again. <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask two, two happy questions. Okay. Let's see. This is a, a question from somebody who's asking, what advice would you give young students in university as they are preparing for the future of jobs? No depression, something oh. happy, something happy. These are young people, they have a long life, something positive. Well, the truth is that I have no idea. Oh. And I think, no. That's good, that's and good. I think nobody really has any idea what the job market would look like in 30 years. Uh, so nobody really can tell you 
what you need to study today, but we just don't know. For the first time in history, we have no idea what the job market would look like in 30 years. There might be new jobs, definitely. It's not that all jobs will, be, will disappear. We just don't know what these jobs will be. I know. Uh, what will they be? Where's Omri? I can't see. Oh, here you are. Statistics. Um, you know, the amount of information is exploding in incredible ways. And in our ability to understand the world around us mm -hmm. is increasing. And, and knowing how to, to do and, and think and analyze data. But will you need humans to do it? Yeah, he's looking for a job. That you know, I'm saying is a, is a job. I'm saying uh, and being a statistician, I think, is something that is going to just increase. And AI will not be a better statistician than human beings? No. Uh, no. And, and, and the reason, I mean, there's multiple reasons, but um, statistics is, is not just about running algorithms through data. It's about having a theory mm -hmm. about what is going on. It's a, it's a process of exploration it, it, that you... You have a theory, you try to figure out what's happening, you ask yourself questions, you find answers. It's a very iterative process. And, and we actually don't teach a lot of statistics, even though I think to be a, a useful citizen uh, in the world, you need, you need some, uh, some statistics. So um, here's one, one answer. Okay. Okay, I, I, I'm more skeptical about, uh, <laughs> about it. But, <laughs> but really? I, I would say that the really necessary skill for a young person in the 21st century is to be able to constantly change and reinvent yourself. Yeah, that because the too. world will not set into any particular pattern. I mean, if previously people thought that life was divided into two main parts, in the first part of life, you, ma you mainly learn and gain skills and knowledge. And then in the second part of life, you mainly make use of the knowledge and skills that you've gained, this is an obsolete view of life. In order to stay relevant, you will have to change and to really reinvent yourself again and again and again. But how to learn this, I, I really don't know. Last question. What is the best joke you know? <laughs> <laughs> what is the best joke I know? No. Um, <laughs> hmm. I asked this. Let, let me think. You gave me a challenge to ask you things people didn't ask you before. Yeah, but nobody now, asked me that one before. There you go. So what's the mm. best joke you know? I don't really tend to tell jokes. I usually... <laughs> you have a chance. You have a chance now. Usually I find reality far more <laughs> funny than any joke that humans can, can invent. I mean, um, it's sometimes really sad how funny the things that humans believe in and that humans do are. And, and I mean, sadly enough, most people just never get the joke. They, they <laughs> <laughs> well.